This past January, my wife Kim and I celebrated 33 years of marriage, which means that we were married in 1989, which to me seems like just yesterday, but 33 years uh, to some is a long time. And what's significant about that is when we got married, I received a very special wedding gift. Now, for those of you today, you may not recognize, but back in 1989, uh, men did not register for gifts when you had a wedding. Matter of fact, men were just a sideshow to the rest of the event. Uh, I don't even believe I was invited to a wedding shower. I don't, uh, wouldn't ask any opinion on anything. Uh, the gifts were for the bride and for the house. And so for me to get a special gift was very significant. Now, when I tell you what the gift is, probably more than half of you in this room will not see the significance of what the gift is because of time. And because of the last 33 years, things have changed. But those of you who do will recognize how important the gift was. That gift I received in January of 1989 was a 50-state road atlas. Amen? And I'm not talking about some cheap knockoff that you get at a convenience store or some, uh, something you pick up at a truck stock. I'm talking about top of the line, Rand McNally Travel Atlas. It was in a faux leather carrier. It was nice. And you would open that thing up and there was a picture of all the United States and all the highways and all the roads. And each page was a different state. And in the corner of those, some of you remember in the corner, there were the cities of those states. And it had the, the maps to the city and the roads and the highways to the city. And uh, it was so special to me. Now, some of you might not think, why in the world would that be special? But in 1989, even 1999, and years before then, you could not leave your house or go anywhere, especially if you were going out of town or out of state, without a map. You had to have a map to sit down and plan where you were going to go and how you were going to get there. And those atlases were invaluable. Many people had one in the car, you had one in the house, so you could plan your route. If you were going somewhere, you would sit down and maybe even write down notes. And if you were driving and you took the wrong exit or you turned on the wrong street, there was no recalculating. The recalculating was up to the navigator who sat in the passenger seat to get the atlas out or the map out and start to try to figure out where you went wrong. Now, I will tell you that that situation and that circumstance did seem to lend itself to several difficult arguments. But those were the good old days, amen? Now, I don't want to burst your bubble of your impression that I am some kind of romantic, but I have to tell you that that travel atlas came in very handy on my honeymoon. Now, I don't mean before my honeymoon planning it, I mean on my honeymoon. You see, I can remember we were leaving, we got married in East Texas, we were driving to Disney World for our honeymoon, and I'd never driven to Florida, and so we were planning our trip and how we were going to get there, and on the first night of our honeymoon, we stayed in Baton Rouge at a little hotel, first place that we could find, because that was getting us out of Texas, getting us towards Florida, and I can vividly remember the night of my honeymoon, 
Kim went to get us something to eat. She ran to McDonald's to grab us something to go. We were fancy. And so she came back. And when she came back, I had laying on the bed that travel atlas spread out to prepare to make sure that I was planning to go the fastest route possible. Because that's what was most important. Amen? We had our priorities. You see, we are so dependent on GPS today, on our watches or on our phones or on our cars. I don't know what we would do if the grid went down. We'd be lost. I don't even know if they still sell travel atlases. And if they did, I don't know if anyone in a younger generation would even know how to read a map. I have people tell me all the time, I wish that there was a travel atlas. I wish that there was a map. I wish that there was a GPS for life. People all over are trying to search for it. If you go to self-help sections in a library or in a bookstore, you'll see hundreds if not thousands of books. But for the Christian, it's very simple for us to understand. We have been given the greatest travel atlas, the greatest GPS that there is in God's Word. See, this book gives us everywhere that we need to go as a Christian, tells us how to get there, and tells us why we should get there. But I recognize that there are some times that as you're reading through this atlas, like trying to read through a map, sometimes it can be confusing. Sometimes as you're trying to find your way into Christian life, it can get confusing as to how you apply the words of this book to your life. So there are passages that are very direct and very clear for those of us who might be confused. Passages that we cannot misinterpret on how we should live the Christian life. And our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 12 is one of those places. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, talking about the race of a Christian. Now I want to give you some context because you need to understand... All of Hebrews chapter 12 is one thought. Uh, it's not broken down into little sections. It's all one general thought. And what we have done is we are taking it week by week and putting it in bite-sized sections. And so that means that every week is building on the week before. And chapter 12 is not standing alone. You remember when we got into chapter 12 that chapter 11 and chapter 12 go together. And since we're college game day, it would be as if chapter 11 is the emotional pregame speech. It's where he tells us of all the people who by faith accomplished incredible things for God. And then chapter 12 is the game plan. Chapter 11 is to tell us that we can. Chapter 12 is to tell us how we can. And when we find ourselves here in verse 12, the very first thing that steps out is there's another therefore. And so what that reminds us is this is one thought, but it also draws us back to the last two weeks. And so what we're going to talk about today is building on the last two weeks of our study. And what we learned in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 11 in the last two weeks is that the Christian life is like a race. It's like a marathon. We are running a race and that each one of us has been assigned our own race to run. And he gives us some hints there on how we can run, the game plan, throw off the things that entangle us, the things that weigh us down, good and bad. Get rid of sin out of your life because it'll be like a vine that'll trip you up. Lean into your faith, your faith in Jesus, your faith in the Word of God, your faith in other Christians. And then last week we learned that if we do not listen to the word, then God is going to get our attention through the rod, through spiritual discipline. 
You see, we learned last week that God loves us enough that he will allow circumstances and situations to come into our life to get our attention. If we're not willing to get in the race, if we're not willing to throw those things off, if we're not willing to get rid of sin, then God will do whatever it takes to get our attention to get us back on track. And so that is what he's building on when he comes to this passage. We know that all of us have our own race. We looked two weeks ago where Paul talks in Philippians 3 that I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I'm running a race that God has saved me and called me to. Each one of you in this room has a purpose from God for your life. And it's a purpose for your life specifically that is not anyone else's purpose. See, there are general purposes. We're called to share the gospel. We're called to love each other. We're called to worship. We're called to serve. But each one of us have been given specific gifts, specific life situations, specific circumstances that put us in a position to run the race that he has for us that no one else can accomplish. And so he tells us, this is how you run the best that you can run. And if we are tempted to take shortcuts, if we're tempted to quit, then he's going to get our attention. And then here in these five verses we're going to look at this morning, he is going to give us navigational tools for running the race. So he doesn't just tell us you run and give it all you've got, and if you don't run, then I'm going to get your attention. He tells us this is what you run towards. And so in this passage, he is going to take six things, three things that we are called to run towards that need to be navigational beacons in our atlas, in our map, as we run the race that God calls us to. He says, go towards those things. And then he's going to give us three things that we need to avoid, three things that become detours, three things that can slow us down. And I want to encourage you that as we go through this, no matter where you are in your Christian walk, whether you've been a Christian for a year or months or 60 years, this is still a lesson for us. Because no matter how old you are or how long you've been with Jesus Christ, these are all important and still struggles that we face. So I want you to listen to what he says, starting in verse 12. Therefore... Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees and make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance, his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing in tears. Now, these elements, each of these three things that we're to look towards and three things we're to avoid are so important that I really wrestled with taking each one of them and spending a week on each one. And many people do. Many people preach messages on each one of these elements because they're that important. But since we've been walking through this now, I feel like those of you that have been with us can grasp the context of what he's trying to say as it relates to our race. And so I'm not going to do that. But I don't want that to diminish the importance of what he says here. I don't want you to understand and think because I'm just going to give you highlights that this is not very important for where you are in your Christian walk. Because it is vital, vital for you to be able to run the race that he's called you to. He starts off right off in verse 12. He says, therefore, which draws us back. You're in a race and God cares how you run. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. 
The picture of feeble arms and weak knees, that is a word picture of someone who is tired. When you think of feeble arms and weak knees, you think of somebody who's tired, somebody who's weary. The, the listeners in Hebrews, the one who this book was written to, they're facing persecution. They're wanting to quit. They're wanting to give up. Now, the interesting thing about verse 12 is that gore that's listed right before weak knees and feeble arms is not in the Greek. It was added later, and now adding it doesn't change the meaning of it, but it helps us understand what he's trying to say. Because if you take that out, when it says strengthen feeble arms and weak knees, it gives us a bitter, bigger picture that it's not just your arms and knees that you need to fix. It is a big, fix all of them, recognize all of them. He says, make level the paths of your feet so that the lame, and the word lame there is those who are struggling, may not be disabled, but rather healed. So the very first touch point that he gives us, the very first navigational mark that he says, this is where you run towards. This is what you remember as you're following the race, is a lesson that's been a part of the book of Hebrews since we started. And that is that you are not running a race alone. You're not running the race of God alone. People are running all around you. You're not the lone ranger. There are people, while you may be called to run your race, that specifically you have to run all around you. In this church, in this world, Christian brothers and sisters in Christ are running their own race. And so as we run our race, we need to recognize and make it a priority to encourage and strengthen those who are running with us. See, if you were only running a solo race, it wouldn't matter who was around you. But we are in this together, all running to the same finish line. And it is important that we recognize that we have an accountability to lift up, to strengthen those who are running beside us. He says, look around and when you see those who are tired or scared or weary, that needs to draw your attention. What good is it if you finish the race by yourself and everyone else around you falls short? Be aware, open your eyes, recognize that maybe your neighbor needs help. Maybe they need a word of encouragement. Maybe they need somebody to bless them. Maybe you need that. And somebody here this morning wants to encourage you and bless you and, and, and think about this, if it's really a relay race, I told you two weeks ago, and not only is it a marathon, but it's a relay race, Paul indicates that when he talks to Timothy and says, I am finishing the race, and he is handing off to Timothy his ministry. And so if this is a relay race that you and I are running for where God calls us to, there is going to come a time when you are the end of your race. And what happens if the person that is going to pick up your baton, your ministry, your calling, and your passion, and take it further than you could, is somebody that you left on the sidelines long ago, or that you walked by without ever paying attention to their needs? So you and I are called to be aware and recognize that people are around us. He says, make straight the paths of those who are following. This is to remind us that in this race that we're running together, that whether we like it or not, people are watching you. They're following you. They're watching the pattern, how you race and where you race and what you're doing. And for some people, you might be the only Christian example they ever see of how to run the race. Think about that. 
He says, make level the paths. Make sure that you're running in such a way that anyone who is coming behind you can find the path, can understand how they're supposed to run. You see, it would break my heart to think that someone behind me used my bad choices or my bad behavior as an excuse or a rationalization for their own choices. So you need to recognize we are not to cause anyone to stumble. We're to make straight the paths. Recognize you're running your race. Yes, you're going where God's called you to go. But we're called to encourage and lift up and help along the way. But we're also to make sure that we run steady. And I love there was one commentator that used this statement of make straight the paths. And, and he said basically it means stay in your lane. There was a great meme that came out several years ago where everyone said, stay in your lane. Find your lane, what you're good at, where you're called to, and stay in that. See, what he's trying to remind us is that underlining this whole idea as we are running, yes, we are to encourage other people. Yes, we are to bless other people. But we also need to recognize that we have our own race to run. And you can't run someone else's race for them. You can't help them run their race that they're called to run because if you spend all your time running their race for them, you'll never accomplish what God's called you to do. And I see so many people trying to run other people's races, especially parents and grandparents. You try to run your children's race. Listen, you can help your kids. You can encourage your kids, but you can't run your ra their race for them. Because the moment you try, you stop running your race and you rob them of the experience of what that race brings. They miss out on milestones that they need in their life that they're going to have to deal with later in life. So you've got a whole generation of, of parents who love their kids, and I don't discount that and want what's best for their kids, but they're so afraid of letting their kids fail or letting their kids make a mistake. And so they've guarded them and they've protected them and they've tried to run the race for them or, or make the race easier for them. And all it's done is create a generation that now that they're getting in college and to become young adults, they can't understand failure because they've never had to deal with it. They've never had to deal with not getting what they want or getting it the way that they've wanted because their parents or their grandparents cut in and tried to run the race for them. And all that did was put you behind and not prepare the people that are running the race with you for what they have to face. Run your race and run it with everything that you've got. He says, you're not alone. Don't forget you're not alone. The second thing he says there is he says, seek to walk in peace. Make every effort to be at peace with everyone around you. Now think of this in the context of a race. I told you before, I, when I was young, I used to run 10Ks and, and uh, further distance, half marathons, 10 milers. And we would go run these huge races, New Orleans, Fort Worth, Atlanta, Peachtree race. And, and there would be 30,000 people running this race. And it was so unbelievable because you would get packed in and you would be elbow to elbow. And I, where I was, because I was so slow, I couldn't even see the start line. I was way back in the back. But they would blow a cannon and, and all of a sudden you would watch heads start to move. And those heads would move and they would move and they'd move and finally they get to you. And so you start walking. And then you start to run. And, and in that push, people are trying to get out ahead. And they're elbowing. And they're kicking, not on purpose, just kicking feet and elbowing and, and pushing you around. And that's the way it happens so often in the Christian life. You see, who he's talking about living in peace with is those who are running with us. Those in the church. He says, make every effort for those that are in the race with you to be at peace with them. 
It's hard enough to run the Christian life without helping those who are on the racetrack elbowing us and tripping us up. The Bible says in Romans 12, 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If you need to, avoid those who are causing you to trip. Avoid those who are troublemakers. Avoid those who are stealing your peace. When we are running together, we need each other's strength, not to tear each other down. It's hard enough on our own, much less having people pull us down. He said, you're looking for touch points of where you need to run to. You need to recognize that you're running with everyone else. So follow those who are following Jesus. Run together, encourage. And as you do, strive to live at peace with those who are running with you. Encourage, not discourage. Lift up, not push down. And then the third thing he says is pursue the path of holiness. Be holy. He says, only with holiness will one see Jesus. And this is the key to navigating the race. Holiness simply means being set apart for God's purpose. It requires sanctification. It means that you are in the process of becoming more like Jesus. You see, part of the race, the goal of the race, is for us to become more like Christ in everything that we do. To take the Word of God and apply it to our everyday lives, to our work, and to our homes, and to our families, and, and to our recreation, and to our coming, and to our going. See, the Word of God is not just for Sunday mornings. It is our guide that we are to live, and as we live and apply it, we become more sanctified, more like Jesus. God rubs off those rough edges. And it's in that place that we need to always pursue. If you're struggling and you're looking for which way to turn, always follow the way of holiness, sanctification, following God. It's not about being perfect. God never calls us to be perfect. I like to say it's not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about which way are you going? Are you moving closer to God? Or are you moving further away? Are you following what his truth is? Or are you backing away? You see, this idea of being holy is also wrapped around the idea of being available. Because the people that God uses are not always the fastest or the best or the strongest or the most talented or the most gifted. The people that God uses are the ones who are available when he needs it. The ones who are ready. And so many of us disqualify our availability because of choices and decisions we make in our life. By pursuing holiness, by becoming more like Christ, we are putting ourselves in a position that whatever God needs, whenever he needs it, we're ready. I remember when I was a kid going out and mowing the grass in Texas. And mowing the grass in Texas is a whole different deal than mowing the grass in North Carolina. I, I, I kid my parents. It's 110 degrees, 105 degrees. And, uh, you know, and I'll tell my dad or my brother, I'm like, well, I'm going to have to wait until it gets down into the 60s before I mow. It was a little hot today, right? Uh, it was hot when I was a kid. And I can remember mowing and just being pouring sweat and going into the house to get a glass of water and opening up our cabinets. Now, I don't know about you, but in our house, we recycled everything. So half of our drinking glasses were not drinking glasses. They were jelly jars. Amen? Do you remember what I'm talking about? So much so, they would put decorations on the jelly jars so that you would clean them out and wash them out. I hated drinking out of jelly jars. I felt weird. And so I open up the cabinet and I look and all of the glasses are dirty. All that is available for me to get a drink is a jelly jar. So guess what I filled up? The jelly jar. 
It wasn't created for that purpose. It wasn't the prettiest glass. It wasn't the most decorative glass. But it was the glass that was available. And you see, when God's looking for somebody to do something for the kingdom of God, when he's looking for somebody to change people's lives, to step in and bless and encourage and change things around us, he's looking for someone available. And what makes you available is your pursuit of holiness. He said, if you want to follow God, pursue holiness. Each of these things are touch points, markers in your life. If you find yourself this morning with your life in a season of recalculation, when you look at your life and you say, I don't know how I got here. I don't know in my marriage how we got here or in relationships how I got here. And you're struggling this morning. I want to tell you that these three points can be pins on the atlas to get you back on track with where God wants you to. But he doesn't just end there. He also gives us three things that are dangerous detours. Things that we need to avoid at all costs. As we run this race, he raises some red flags and says on your map as you're running and you're running together with everyone else and you are living at peace and you are pursuing holiness, you're going after those things. Watch out for these three dangers because they will always detour you from the path and the race that God's called you to. He says in verse 15 something very interesting. He says that if we get lost in these three places, we can miss out on God's grace. He says, be very careful that no one misses God's grace. What does that mean, miss God's grace? doesn't mean that God's grace is not available. What it means is we get so wrapped up into these three things, they so consume us that they keep us from experiencing the grace of God. And God's grace, His unmerited favor, is the only thing that gets us through the race. So that's why these three things are dangerous. And so look what he says, the first one in verse 16. Avoid bitterness. Rip out any root of bitterness. Bitterness is like a sinkhole that sucks everything in it touches. Now you might find it surprising that if we were going to list three things to avoid, three big things to avoid, that bitterness would make the list. Well, let me just tell you as a pastor, I have seen bitterness destroy more people and more churches than anything else combined. Because bitterness is a subtle under the current affection and infection that penetrates our heart and robs us of our joy and our peace. Bitterness grows when we allow unresolved issues to begin to eat away at us. I've heard it described as a small tumor that starts very little and if left untreated can affect the whole body. How do we become bitter? We become bitter through disappointment or betrayal or unforgiveness or misunderstandings or unjust criticism or the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. Didn't get something that we thought we deserved. And instead of dealing with it, instead of wrestling with it, we allow it to get down into our spirit and grow into a root. That's why the Bible says, do not go to sleep on your anger. Because by going to sleep on your anger, what you're doing is you're allowing that unforgiveness, that hurt that you felt, that, that struggle that you had to go down into your spirit and begin to eat away at your spirit. Bitterness can destroy you spiritually because it causes you to walk in the flesh. Bitterness can destroy you physically. Bitterness has been rated to heart problems and ulcers and blood pressure. See, bitterness never stops working. Bitterness, even when you're asleep, bitterness is working its way through your spirit. It's like an app on your phone that you didn't turn off, right? 
Some of you go to your phone and you look and you've got like 40 apps that you're still open and you're wondering why your battery is dying all the time. It's because you're not closing the apps. That's what bitterness does to our bodies. It just keeps working and keeps churning and keeps creating scenarios and keeps making us more angry and more hurt over something that happened to us. It destroys you emotionally. Bitterness will make you paranoid and negative and critical of everything around you. And it destroys relationships because bitterness never stays just with us. It spills over into those around us. And if you've ever been around a bitter person, you, you know how true that is. Because they're hypercritical and they're negative of everything. And it just eats them from the inside out. And it robs you of your peace. That's why he's saying, listen, when you're on the life that God's called you, avoid bitterness at all costs. I heard a comedian say one time, he said, I've had lots of arguments with people. He said, but I've never carried a grudge. He said, because I learned early on when I carried a grudge while I am sitting around carrying a grudge and being angry, the person I'm angry with is out living life. And that's the way bitterness does. Someone described bitterness as this poison that seeps inside of us and destroys us from the inside out. Let me just tell you, this morning, if you're struggling with bitterness, the first thing that you need to do is identify what it is that caused the bitterness. What hurt it was that led to you being in this place. And please understand, I, I know people say, but you don't understand, I have a right to be hurt. They, they did something wrong to me. They, they did this, or they did that, or somebody said this, or somebody said that, and it hurt my feelings, or it hurt me, or it cost me a job, and it's bitterness deep in your spirit. For some of you, it may be 30 and 40 and 50 years back, and it's still seeping into your spirit. Doesn't matter if it hurt. The Bible says we are called to forgive. How much should we forgive? As much as Christ forgives us. And so the first thing you need to do is identify what it is that's eating at your spirit. And then you need to forgive them. You need to let them go. And then you need to move on. Don't give bitterness a place in your heart. That's why he calls it a root. Because the longer it works, the deeper it sinks its roots into your spirit. And it slowly crushes your joy. He says, get away from bitterness. The second thing he says is flee sexual immorality. And that word flee means run from it. He says, don't go near it. Don't hang around it. Don't rationalize it. Don't give it a place in your life. This is one of those places where he is very direct. Because the word sexual immorality here and every time the New Testament uses that phrase is not talking about the sex act. The word that's used there is porneia, where we get the word pornography. And the word when he says sexual immorality is talking about all sexual thoughts and behaviors that are outside of God's boundaries. Premarital, extramarital, any sexual activity of any kind that are outside the boundaries of God's law. Now, now please laugh, understand. God, I've told you this before, God created sex. He wants it to be the most incredible thing that you can have. Seventh graders, eighth graders, put your muscle, hair muscle on it, right? God created sex. He wants it to be fantastic, but he put boundaries up so that we wouldn't have to deal with all the permission of their parents. They're encouraging them to choose whatever they want. Many times encouraging them to choose the opposite of what they were born as. Not making it up. We have a, a whole group in America today who is struggling to define what it means to be a woman. 
We have men that are now allowed to go into women's locker rooms and women's prisons and play on women's sports teams and be around them without clothes. And you can call me old-fashioned. Not being hateful. I'm not being unloving. Matter of fact, I'm being the most loving that I can be because I'm speaking the truth of the danger that comes when you cross those boundaries. It destroys lives. It's why the Bible is so very clear. Run away from it. Get away from it. And the idea of fleeing sexual immorality is not just about our actions. It's also about our thoughts because all of our actions start with a thought. Don't entertain it. Don't give it a place in your thought life. Listen to me. If this morning you're struggling with sexual immorality, this morning that is an issue for you, whether in thought or action. I would tell you first and foremost, stop the behavior. Whatever it is, stop. And the second thing that you need to do is to repent. And what repent means is not just to turn around from that behavior, but repent literally means to say what God says about it. So if God calls it a sin, call it a sin. It's not just love. It's not just something that everybody thinks is okay. If it's a sin in the Word of God, it's a sin. No matter what popular opinion is. No matter what the sway of our nation is. Repent from it. Turn away from it. And then begin to pursue God moving forward. Take your thoughts captive. He said, if you're on the life, if you're on the race that God's called us to, sexual immorality, I can promise you, will always take you in the opposite direction than God wants you to go. And so many Christians and so many people find themselves so far away from God because of decisions they made through sexual immorality that it's struggling to get back. It's easy to get back. Stop and repent. Turn around and God will pick you up where he left you off. Flee sexual immorality. Avoid bitterness. And the last thing he says here is avoid worldliness. He calls it godless. And he uses Esau, who was Jacob's brother, as an example. You remember who Esau was? He was the oldest brother. He was the one who was going to receive Isaac's blessing. He came in one day. He'd been out hunting and out working. And he was hungry and his brother tricked him. He said, for your birthright, for what you were rightfully owed, I will give you this cup of soup. And Esau traded his birthright for a cup of soup. And that's what the writer here is comparing to buying into the world's philosophies. Now, when you say worldliness, I know sometimes in my mind, because I grew up in the church. And so when I was a kid, worldliness was all of those actions that we weren't supposed to do, right? They called it worldly behavior. You didn't dress that way. You didn't listen to that kind of music. You didn't drink or smoke or chew or go with those that do, right? All of those things that were, you know, and it depends on your generation. For some of you, it may have been playing pool or going to the bowling alley or going to movies. Whatever it was, they called that worldly. You need to stay away from those worldly things. That's not what he's talking about here. And sadly, many people in legalistic faith are so wrapped up into not doing those things, they're missing out on what God is telling them really not to do. What's he mean here when he says avoid worldliness? It means trading the grace and message and love of Jesus Christ, what God wants for your life, for the philosophies of the world. Buying into what the world says is most important. Buying into those systems that tell you that bigger is better. And please yourself first. And, and whatever you want, go get it. And we buy into those things thinking that that's the way God wants us to do. Because we couch it in Christianity. And we think, but I'm not, I don't do these things over here. These worldly things. 
That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about buying into the philosophies of the world. He says, when you do that, what you're doing is you're trading your birthright. You're trading who you are in Jesus Christ for a momentary glimpse of satisfaction that will never satisfy you and always become a dead end. Listen, we live in a world today where it's very difficult, very much a struggle to tell the difference between the world and those in the church. And it shouldn't be that way. See, Christians are supposed to be different. Our philosophy, our worldview, our mindset is based on the things of God. And when you find yourself detouring that way, you're trading who God saved you and called you to be. See, what it wants us to understand is everyone in this room is in a race. You're in a race that God foreordained for you before the foundations of the world. He gave you gifts and purposes and skills and talents. And he placed you in the family he placed you in, where he placed you in. He got you the job that you're at now for a reason so that you could run his race. So that others might see Jesus in you. So that you can bless those around you. So you can share the gospel. But we can't run the race as long as we're not following the right roadmap. Some of you this morning are sidetracked. Some of you this morning are struggling. So the question for us is which direction are you headed? If you had to pull out the atlas from your last year, from your last 10 years... The atlas of your work, the atlas of your marriage, the atlas of your relationships. What would be the touch points in that atlas? Where would it be that you took detours or you didn't go where you needed to go? You see, this morning is a new beginning. The reason you're here this morning is because God wants to get your attention to get back in the race. Every year, I think it's funny, every year you hear about it on the news of people who followed their GPS blindly. And they end up in the middle of the woods or even driving into the middle of a lake. You've heard people that they just follow the GPS. I, I don't understand. It's water, you know. No matter what the voice on the, the thing is telling you, you can look out and say, no, maybe that's not the way I'm supposed to go. But they just drive in. There's people that have driven off the side of mountains. Let me tell you, that never happened when we had maps and atlases. Because when we had maps and atlases, it required planning for where you were headed. You just didn't follow an unchecked voice. You see, what I'm worried about this morning is that some of us, if we're not careful, the same thing can happen to us spiritually. See, some of you are driving to a place that you should never go because you're listening to the voice of the world. And maybe it's time that you start planning and trusting and living your life according to the God's Word and the Holy Spirit's leaning before it's too late. Let's pray.